Welcome, friends. James Corbett here. And as I record this, it is currently the 17th of February, 2014, somewhere in the world, depending what side of the, the dateline or what side of the rainbow you're on. So we are here on the third Monday of the month, and that can only mean one thing. The next edition of Film Literature in the New World Order, our weekly pod, uh, sorry, our monthly podcast investigating books and movies and how they relate to the unfolding globalist scheme. And this month we have a very interesting book on the table for conversation as uh, listeners who are playing along at home will know we are reading This Is What We Do by Tom Hansen. So if you haven't read it yet, stop the podcast and read it, <laughs> because I guarantee you will get a lot more out of this if you've actually read the book. And this is a very interesting book that i sure I wouldn't have come across by myself if it weren't for the man that's on the other end of the line right now, and that is our old friend Jack Blood of DeadlineLive.info and RadioFreeBlood.com, who of course has his uh, recently revived Jack Blood radio show on the Micro Effect, so I hope people are listening to that and supporting his media, and he was the one who got me uh, in to read this book uh, through his repeated exhortations and his very high recommendation of the book, as well as an interview that he did with the book's author, Tom Hansen. So, Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today about this book. Absolutely, James. I love that you do this segment. And coming from you, it should be in, you know, the New Yorker, the New York Times. It's so interesting. And there are no critics, film critics and art critics like yourself out there. So hopefully this takes off. Well, I hope so, too. And I'm glad that we can actually support an artist who is still alive at this point. Um, I think this is probably the first uh, living uh, novelist that we've covered so far in this series. So so in that on that very note, of course, as I mentioned, you have talked to Tom on your podcast, the second edition of your short-lived Jack Blood podcast, which is available at RadioFreeBlood.com. So I hope people will go and listen to that. You did interview Tom about the book. I understand you and Tom go way back. Do you have uh, some history? We do. Yeah, we do. And saying he's alive, I'm sure, is a quite a compliment because it's close. We, we're not sure sometimes about Tom if he's alive or dead um, or somewhere in between, which is probably why the protagonist in his book is called James Nethery, kind of of the nether world of the nether regions. But I have known, um, yeah, I've known Tommy for a really long time. He was the guitar player for a couple of bands in Seattle that really kind of started the whole Seattle scene. And if he could have kept himself in better health, he would no, like, no doubt be a rock star right now. But if you read his first book, American Junkie, you'll know that um, he, did, he did play with rock stars and it almost killed him. And it killed a lot of the rock stars, too. So we go way back. And that book, American Junkie, is just an amazing book to read if you want to know about American culture. And he's just such a great writer. So before we discuss the book a little bit, James, I'd be curious to find out what you thought about it. How was it? Well, yeah, the, uh, that's a good question, and uh, I have my mixed feelings about this, because it is a good book. It is exceptionally well-written. It is gripping. Uh, there's no doubt about that. It is a page-turner, and once you get into the story, uh, you read through to the end, um, and I liked many different aspects of this book. Um, but I had my misgivings about other aspects. And for people who have read it, you'll know that this is a kind of a hard-boiled... In fact, Tom Hansen used the term revenge fantasy in your uh, interview with him, and I yeah. think that's a pretty good description of it. It is kind of a revenge fantasy, and so much of the book is revolving around that. Not only 
the main story of the protagonists or antiheroes or whatever we want to call them, but also the kind of subtext that's boiling under the surface of this with this global revolution that's kind of happening in the background of the book, which is, of course, fascinating and I think probably the main part of what we're going to be talking about today. But I, I guess I should put up my reservations about this up front. Basically, my, my reservation about the book was the, the way in which the, the, the violence um, that was enacted by James Nethery himself were, was described in the book, I thought was, uh, well, uh, troubling in, in certain ways. The, the kind of detachment that he has from the, the acts of killing, which in the context of the story, of course, is, is in self-defense type situations and I, I think fully justified. I, I don't think that we, we have to necessarily say that the violence wasn't, uh, wasn't appropriate in this situation, but I think just the way that it's described as him sort of being detached from it, he, he feels nothing as he, he kills these people and, and, uh, and uh, that, that kind of worries me because it gets into that range of the glorification of the violence. And I know that I, I know that wasn't really Tom's intention with this work, but I think that when we, we describe violence in that kind of glib manner, that can be one of the effects of it. And uh, I, I just have my own misgivings about that. But having said that, I sure. think that the sure. subtext... Well, hey, listen, I mean, that's the thing about the book, James, is that it is violent. There is some violence and he doesn't dwell on it, but there's enough of it in the book that, you know, it is a little bit creepy. And then it also begs a few other questions, such as, you know, do these guys on Wall Street, these bankers that kill millions of people in war and, and with poverty and all the things they do is they move their funny money all around the place. You know, do they deserve, do they bring this on themselves? Do they deserve what they get? And the the other protagonists in the book, I guess, are the People's Mafia, which without giving too much of the book away, we can talk about it. These are anonymous, leaderless people. The, the illusion that the media has painted in this book that there is some kind of a cohesive movement somewhere that has a figurehead is completely wrong. They have got that wrong in the book, and that's what's so funny about it, that it is just a bunch of detached people who have finally had enough and decide that they're going to not take it out on you know a school or a shopping mall, but actually on the people that caused them this pain. And you wonder what's taking so long. But let me say this. It asks, it asks a pretty interesting question in that everybody that Nethery kills deserves it, basically, in this book. That's fair to say, right? Yeah, well, I... <laughs> Yes, uh, although I have my misgivings about the couple that he kills in the apartment building. Um, <laughs> to, they, play the to play the loud music. Yeah, I'm not you sure know, that's funny. quite worth execution death, you know. <laughs> well, we've all been there. You know what I'm saying? Again, it's kind of a bit of a fantasy. In fact, when I got to that point in the book, I'd sat and it's about halfway through the book, as you know. I read that book about halfway, and I'm at my friend's house in Seattle, and all of a sudden, I can't finish. I can't read anymore because the downstairs neighbor is playing some really terrible music right at the time I'm reading that, which is... I'm, I'm imagining Michael Bolton or something. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, well, this does... So maybe it helped me to get through that part because of it. But they were also, you know, making life just horrible for everybody around them. And, and you know, I've been watching this show called Dexter on, uh, it's on Netflix now, but it was on Showtime. And there's about eight or nine seasons and it's about a guy who is a serial killer, but he only kills bad people, right? He only kills other killers. 
And it kind of brings up that interesting paradox of, is it ever okay to kill? And we should all be asking ourselves that question because governments and corporations and the powers that be use that very justification all the time. We have to go into Libya because Muammar Gaddafi is evil or we have to kill Saddam Hussein because he gassed his own people. So we're constantly being asked these questions, though for once we're being asked it almost in reverse as if the powers that be are the real evil and do they deserve to be killed? Not, um, you know, people roaming the streets because of the pestilence and the poverty and the war that's all around them. That's right. I mean, that is an important issue that we do have to, to bring up and we do have to discuss. So I'm glad that this novel brings that up in the context of this global revolution that's happening kind of in the background of the novel, because that really does bring out that contrast that we we look kind of just we just take it as as the daily news that there are these wars that go on that are perpetrated and waged for fictitious reasons by people who call themselves authorities that end up killing millions of people around the globe and we kind of just look at this as and accept it but when we see an individual death we get very upset about it and the question is well why are we not at a, a million times more upset at the types of wars that are being waged and it's a valid question so let's just talk a little bit about the, some of the specific things that we see in this novel for example on uh, page 128 uh, Nethery turned on the television all the stations were covering breaking news from America a pair of lobbyists for the insurance industry had been discovered in their office on Wall Street decapitated and missing their ha hands the perpetrators had somehow smuggled in and assembled a guillotine right in their office on the 30th sixth floor. Uh, one of the heads had been positioned against the wall, and a speech balloon was drawn to make it appear the head was saying, I got another tax cut. They'd used the rest of the blood to spell out their message, and photos showed a trail of words down the concrete walls of the stairwell. This is what we do. This is what we do. This is what we do. The news was calling it an attack on the United States, but most weren't seeing it this way. A reporter asked a man on the street what he thought, and he said, of course it's a terrible tragedy, but they kind of had it coming, didn't they? There was speculation on how the per perpetrators had gotten past the private security firms guarding Wall Street, and some of the firm's employees were being investigated. A government official came on and said how these terrorist acts were threatening the stability of the economic system. So this is the kind of violence that's that's percolating under the, the, the entire yeah. story. And I think it is interesting to see that and, and to see the, the kind of reactions that they're getting from the people. Well, they kind of had it coming, didn't they? Yeah. Versus the way the media is trying to portray it, an attack on the United States as if the insurance industry lobbyists are the United States. So, I mean, it's pretty, pretty in your face what's happening here. And I think um, no, no one who's a listener, a regular listener to the corporate report will not have their sympathies about that type of revenge fantasy. Um, and it, it brings to my mind the question of why isn't this type of leaderless movement actually taking place in the real world right now? We, we are seeing this type of ridiculousness. A lot of people are upset. Why hasn't this actually occurred? Well, I mean, to answer that question, and then I want to go back to some of the other things you just said, James, we're pack animals. You know, it's hard to get us away from, from our instinct, our reptilian brains, isn't it? We want to hunt in packs. We want to have a leader. We are kind of um, inclined to be dominated or to dominate others. It is just kind of the nature of the beast if we look at ourselves in the five senses. Um, so I, I hate that that's the answer, but unfortunately it is. And uh, people like, you know, you and me, we don't follow leaders. And I'd like to inspire my listeners and fans and people that read our website not to do that. And it actually hasn't helped me, James, because people want a leader. Okay. <laughs> they want to be told what to do. They want to go from one leash to the next. And 
And um, that's just the truth of the matter. So the, the biggest fantasy in that book is that it is a leaderless revolution, but only because people are led by what? The phrase, this is what we do. That's their leader. So they do, in a sense, kind of have direction. They have a leader at every one of these crime scenes. And the, my favorite is the bull on Wall Street ends up one morning, they wake up and there's two uh, Wall Street investment bankers from Goldman Sachs or something skewered on the horns, man, <laughs> you know, like Moloch. I hate to laugh. It's not, it's not funny, but you see what I'm saying? So, and then they write, this is what we do. And I started imagining, you know, what if all over the world this was starting to happen, these bankers that we're hearing that are dying, and, and maybe next to the guy you saw, this is what we do. How would the news report it? I'm betting they'd cover it up is what I'm That's betting. That's exactly because- right. No, that's exactly what I was thinking. I think my answer to the question of why we haven't seen this is because even if it was happening, we would never in a million years see that going within 100 miles of the uh, the BBC or any other mainstream outlet. They would do their best to make sure that that never got reported so that it could never get copied. And, and we've all talked about the copycat effect of the uh, school shootings and things like that. The more they cover it, the more they happen. And I think they know this. This is why they would never, ever report something like this actually happening in the real world. Yeah, the first person that Netherly kills, remember, is, you know, raping his girlfriend, who is um, a European model, okay? And, I mean, they he caught him in the act, and they were filming it, and, and that kind of led him down this trail. But remember now, in all of this, there is another good guy, and he is the reporter in England that smuggles... Nethery's story, his real story, the truth of what was happening um, into the newspaper. And um, they took down Dutroux, I think his name was, the, uh, <laughs> the evil, he was a, a modern-day human trafficker, and they were using high, the high-end modeling and fashion business to traffic these women. And I actually just saw a documentary the other night, and that's exactly what's happening. And you live in Japan. You know, there are mules that go to like Siberia and find these cute little 13 year olds and you probably see them on TV in Japan and they're they're hot in the modeling business there. And if they don't make it there, they owe money and you know how the rest of this works. So he also um, Tom Hansen in this book also exposes the entire fashion industry. I mean, there's just a lot of little incidental things in there with some really beautiful and quick moving writing. I like to think that Tom is like the new version of the street writer, you know, maybe the Burroughs of his time or the Bukowski of his time or the Jim Carroll of his day. And he's got a lot more in him, James, and I want to really keep him writing, you know? Absolutely. Well, I, I think it is an important voice, and I'm glad that he's covering, you know, these important topics, which we often talk about and, and kind of putting them on the table, because this is the question that's been on the tip of everyone's tongue for a long time. Where is the revolution? Why hasn't it arrived yet? Why isn't it being televised? And again, I think that uh, we're never going to see it televised, and we really have to stop uh, waiting for that to happen in order to, to, to start this type of movement. And in some ways, I mean, the idea of a leaderless revolution that's taking place that isn't being reported on, I've, I've thought about this, is it happening? And I've thought about things like the sovereign citizen movement, which is not a violent revolution or a violent movement, or at least not at base, not philosophically, but it is that type of idea. It's more of an idea that people subscribe to that 
helps them to detach from the system or at least see that they're not necessarily wedded to the system? And of course, how has it been portrayed, p- b- portrayed to the extent that it has ever been portrayed in the, in the media? They, you have those CNN hit pieces and CBS hit pieces about the sovereign citizen movement and these violent, dangerous criminals who don't want birth certificates and don't believe they're, they're, they need a driver's license and things like this. So um, again, I think maybe this is kind of happening in certain ways, but again, yeah. we'll never see it on the news. Well, and that is, again, largely just because of the decentralized nature of being nonconformist and individuals and naming yourself something as sovereign. And it is difficult to try to get things done in a leaderless movement, but you can see how things catch on. And I think it's worth noting that this book that we're discussing tonight with you, James, was written long before we heard of an Arab Spring or anything. You know, it um, it didn't you know take from the news in that respect that there was a global revolution happening or or. You know, we've seen a bunch of them kind of come and go. We realize that a lot of these are, you know, engineered on Facebook or they're engineered through, uh, you know, non-GMO or (laughs) GMO, uh, non-government organizations, right? The front groups and and people like USAID and Amnesty International. And we see a lot of the Red Cross and, and the normal players involved in these things. And so we have to be really suspicious and question them. And then we see who benefits from the revolutions and it's the usual suspects. So this is... Is a particular leaderless revolution that has doesn't even have really a goal other than it is just the pot boiling over. You know, I just read um, uh, Daniel Estelin's new book called Trans. It's called Trans Evolution. I really recommend it if you haven't read it and you should have him on. And it, it gets into a bunch of white papers of how the elites are preparing for the future and they are full on preparing for a massive revolt by the people um, the theory here is that uh, their their system has run out of gas and they can't keep up with it and eating their own isn't uh, satisfied them. So eventually, you know, the other shoe is going to drop. And I think that will be loss of pensions. And when we start seeing that and it's super inflation, like we might be seeing in Venezuela today, that's causing the revolution down there, then we're going to see people really losing it. So where are they going to channel that energy, James? And that's the thing. And if this is just, you know, um, a kind of a targeted, almost revenge revolution for the people that sat at the the very top penthouse while people were starving below and and they were literally stealing their their food you know then you almost can't deny that this could happen and will happen and so the rallying cry of this is what we do is once again something that brings it together it isn't we do it because it's right he never says that in the book it isn't because we do it because we're crazy or we're on drugs or we've been made this way and we're a bunch of victims it's just this is what we do <laughs> you know right right and and it, it's interesting the way it kind of develops in the book and i i thought the way that uh that uh, nethery describes it in his interview with the other uh, the bbc reporter is 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 very interesting the way he he frames it he says the problem is uh n- or the reporter says you seem to have a problem with the rich and nethery answers no not really the problem is who becomes rich Something has changed. It's not the most worthy among us, the most virtuous, the hardest working, the most humble, the smartest, even the strongest. But it's the most devious, the best liars, the sociopaths and narcissists, the weak and the soft, the shit like Dutronc. Uh, These people don't care if the planet goes to hell or an entire town is thrown out of work. They don't care how many people get chewed up and spat out. It's sick and wrong and it has to be stopped. Um, But there are ways... Oh, don't make me laugh. So what, are you going to stop it? Wallace asked. I have a message, Nethery said quietly. A message? For whom? For anyone listening. And what is that? It's time to choose. 
choose. Yes, there's no sideline to stand on and watch. No more of that crap about the system fucking us over. You're a part of it or you're not. And if you choose to stand with them, know this. We're coming after your ass. So uh, he, he makes an interesting um, uh, speech there because I think it, it, this is something that, that goes closer to the heart of the issue. It isn't, it isn't about necessarily wealth disparity. It isn't just that there are rich and there are poor. It's that the, the, even the idea, the American dream, which was always just a dream, but, uh, but even that ideal has been completely jettisoned for more of the kind of Gar- Gordon Gecko sociopath rising to the top idea that unfortunately is being emulated more and more, especially on Wall Street, where you just have parasites who rise to the top of this system and no one really even denies that very much these days um at least not anyone who's being serious and this is a system that just even to participate in it is to be part of the problem and i think more and more people are reaching that point and i guess the question is what people are going to do about it yeah and i'll tell you you nailed it and that's the same page i dog-eared for sure when i got there so i'm glad that you read that to the listeners You know, Tom is a real proud guy who is an amazing artist who's never had any money, okay, other than maybe through the black market for a while. And I got to tell you that I have a lot of things in common with him. So we we don't have anything to lose. It's it's just that people are controlled by the things they have to lose. So what I just said here a few minutes ago, that when people don't have as much to lose, and we saw that, you know, that has been kind of a continuation since the subprime meltdown in 07 and in 08, that it really hurt people. And you can see just the whole vibe, the whole attitude is just much different. And, you know, even people that would have never mentioned something like the Federal Reserve or investment banks and not just Wall Street in general, because not all Wall Street is bad, but the investment banks, investment houses that are taking $60 billion a month. Oh, sorry, they're cutting that by $8 billion, $52 billion a month, you know, in, in uh, interest-free loans that they can create monopolies with. You know, people now know this stuff, James, and that's the thing that we have never been in an information age like we are now. So this is exactly not only what could happen, but most likely what will happen. This is what we do, which is basically, as you know, it's kind of a love story. It's a love story with a little bit of a political conspiracy edge, which I think in the the end takes over the book because you can't have a love story anymore. There isn't a love story because our love is being completely whipped and shotted by the very people that are taking food out of our mouths. So so more people are going to be upset. More people are going to be looking for something to do. And this is what we do. So, I mean, I'm asking the question Ultimately, there's a lot of right and wrongs here. I don't make a judgment on those things. That's not for me to judge. That's, you know, for something like the universe might judge, right? Because everything is semantics. But when it comes down to it, you know, why are people blowing up schools and innocent people in airplanes and in hospitals and even embassies? Maybe that I understand. Why are people, you know, shooting in malls all the time? When, when there are clear-cut targets and only the only way you can answer that is because they've used divide and conquer so well. At some point, when is that not going to hold? When is it not going to hold and when are people from all over the world going to quit following orders and just be as primal and as animal as the people that have inflicted this pain on them? And yet, when something like the uh, Joseph Andrew st- Stack uh, crashing his plane into the IRS building happens, it, again, 
looks and seems like a setup in a lot of ways. So I think they're, again, I think they move ahead of these types of ideas and memes, and perhaps they've seen something in their little, uh, you know, predicting the world type That's software. That's that you bring that up, because I was actually a mile away from that thing when Joe Stack, my, one of my neighbors, by the way, crashed into that IRS building, which was also the Echelon building, had the CIA and the FBI and that entire complex purposely put the plane into a place he knew wouldn't hurt anybody. He did kill a guy, um, wrote a manifesto that was almost sounds like he was an Obama fan <laughs> and was completely raked over the coals by the IRS. Everything he had, he lost. He was a musician, a local musician in Texas that a lot of people knew. And I'm absolutely certain that that was not a false flag, that that was exactly what I think you might have been alluding to, James, somebody who'd finally had enough and put the plane into the right target. Interesting. Well, again, I I haven't looked into it enough to be able to say either way. I I thought there were some indications that there were some shenanigans going on with his plane, actually, and some interesting connections about where he was keeping his plane. But uh, but anyway, I I, I certainly do take the point that there are people who who will spill over in this way, but it's maybe instructive to see, of course, the way that was treated in the media and the way that... That's exactly right. There were things about that that bothered me, too, and I don't want to go into all that minutia, but the fact that it never comes up that the media dropped it in about a week, I thought was incredible. Exactly. I mean, to me, that's the yeah. thing. You know, I was up speaking in Oklahoma City once um, at a bookstore there, and that very night, a guy had strapped a bomb to himself and blown himself up on the OU campus, and there all we are, the perfect suspects, like miles away, right? But um, it never got reported in the news. And that's, to me, that's the kickoff. If the news, if there's some kind of a terrorist incident and the news doesn't report it, then I'm feeling that it is because people are boiling over and people are going to fight back and people are going to do things. And some of the the alleged terrorists that want to kill us really do want to kill us, probably for good reason. What we're saying, though, I think, James, is that who do they take their orders from? They take their orders from the people that give them the money and the resources to carry out their plans. And that's usually the same people. But Joe Stack was just one guy. It never got reported. Um, a flip side from Wayne Page, who went, if you remember, went and shot up that Sikh temple, and we found out that he had connections to Columbine and to the, um, and to the Army's uh, Psychological Warfare Division. And once that hit the web, you never heard that guy's name again. <laughs> you know? Exactly so. right. No, I mean, it's so, it's so obvious when you start to, to understand the game. Um, just look at the way it's covered in the mainstream media. And if it's endlessly obsessed over like every Al-Qaeda boogeyman, um, you know it is fake. You know they are trying to promote that idea into existence. And when it's actual real terrorism that's, that's happening for some sort of political cause that they don't want to promote, like whether it's Puerto Rican terrorists in the 70s with their wave of bombings and New York and places like that, they'll just, they, they will not cover it. They will not dwell on it because they know, uh, the, the media isn't stupid. They know that what they cover in many ways shapes the reality that they're covering. And uh, and again, I just don't think they'll come within uh, any type of genuine leaderless uh, revolution like what we see in the book with a, with a, yeah. a, a 10-foot pole. But um, what do you think then about uh, Tom's decision at the end of the book uh, spoiler alert, people! Again, please Uh-oh. read the book. But but at the end of the book, where um, basically Nethery becomes kind of n- not the leader, but everyone wants him to be the leader of this leaderless movement. That people are again thirsting for the idea of a leader. That probably happens every day, 
right? That same thing that this is all by osmosis. I could say by, you know, there's a lot of music and culture that has come up through uh, the input and ideas and, and work from thousands of people. But then all, all of a sudden, like Madonna will come and take credit for it, you know? So it kind of happens every day. And then it's in a way that's almost a stereotype, but that's how it would happen as I imagine. And there is a part two in this that we're dying for Tom to write all of us, but, uh, but we'll see his style is so unique folks. And it's such an easy style to read. He doesn't bog you down in the description of a leaf or something. Not that I mind that I love classic literature, but it just moves along at light speed. And, and I thought it was some, not only brought up some great questions and made me think and was very entertaining. The, this is what we do by Tom Hansen. But um, it also inspired me a little bit. And I'm not one that would advocate anyone to go out and perform violence. I'm, I'm kind of in the same mood as John Lennon. I do believe, you know, violence begets violence. But at some point when you're constantly being pummeled in the corner, you know, you got to hit back. And um, I think if people are going to hit back, the book kind of in a way gives you a model for how something like that could happen. And I, again, think will happen. Well, I, I agree with what you just said there. I certainly don't advocate violence. I think that the only violent revolutions we ever get are things like the French Revolution that end up with greater tyranny than what they started with. And that happens time and time again throughout history. So I, I don't even, uh, I mean, just even as a consequential argument, I don't argue for it, let alone the philosophical argument. But I do agree that if this type of violence uh, uprising were ever to be effective, the only way it could ever be effective is if it was more based around some idea that people could attach themselves to rather than actually being some sort of organized movement because organized movements are so easy to decapitate or corrupt or co-opt or dismantle or uh, derail um, that they uh, they know how to deal with that. But I don't think there is really a template for dealing with, with a leaderless uh, movement and the only thing that they have that at that point is their perception management uh, watchdogs in the mainstream media that that which has been backfiring mm-hmm. i think it's been that's been backfiring a lot lately so obviously there is no playbook for where we're going as a species as a planet and that kind of i guess i hope gives us a bit of an advantage um i don't read a lot of fiction that's for sure but i did love this book and i also uh, just read the octopus deception which is we just mentioned daniel estelin's new book he also wrote a book of quote-unquote fiction I mean, literally, Danny Costellaro is one of the characters in the mm. book, and there's a lot of real people in this book, and he also kills a banker with relish, mm. <laughs> which he talked about on my show the other day, and just enjoyed the literary killing uh, of um, you know, Citibank's vice president, who was part of this octopus deception, and there's a lot to learn in that book, too. So, Well, um, let's just, I mean, let's just mar- put the, 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 the exclamation mark on this. I mean, this is an idea that is in the zeitgeist right now, and people are kind of picking it out of the air, not just Hansen, but as you say, Estulin and others. And I think that's probably the reason why this bankster suicide meme is really popular. I see a lot of attention on this um, from, from my followers, etc. And I think it's not, I, I, I don't think there's anything there. I haven't seen any there there yet with the, oh. uh, the the bankster deaths. I don't think they're connected. In fact, some of them aren't even bankers. I mean, you have the, the president of Tata Motors somehow being linked in with this and, and other things. I don't think there is a connection that I've seen, and I haven't seen any documentary evidence of that. But people are, I think, really interested 
in this idea of bankers dying right now. I think it really is in the in the air because we have just watched the most incredible in your face plunder of uh, of human wealth in 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 the entirety of history of the globe right in front of our faces and not a single bankster has really been put put in jail or, or shackled as a result of this and and I think people realize I mean there's there's just no there's no even lying to yourself anymore about the, the injustice of the system. So I think that uh, there, people really are focusing on this. So I think Tom has definitely picked that uh, out of the air. I think it is it is happening right now. And I think we are going to start seeing something at some point. Or I, I can't imagine how we won't get to that point at some point. But again, they've managed to skirt any kind of violent uprising this long. Who knows? Well, who knows? it's just nice to watch something or read something with fiction that doesn't have something to do with going and killing bin Laden and special ops and Matt Damon and all of that. <laughs> yeah. so it's a nice. In fact, you make a great book out of this is what we do, or for that matter, the octopus deception, the few uh, books of fiction or quote unquote faction that are out there. Uh, it is important. You know, a lot of people say, James, I've heard this for years, that we are like the fall of Rome. Or this is the fall of Rome that we're in, the fall of this American empire anyway. Or that we are like the Weimar Republic before the uh, socialist Nazis came in. I really think that the time I'm seeing, not just in this country, but around the world, and again, you have to remember, if you don't travel a lot or don't have friends or talk to people around the world, you know, it isn't all about be all end all of the United States. China feels pretty confident that, that they got a big market on their own and that they could operate it. And, and so there are a lot of forces here at work. But I think we're more like the French Revolution before the French Revolution. Off with their heads, James. <laughs> well, right. And, and uh, you, you noticed in that excerpt we read earlier, the guillotine, the specter of the guillotine. So I think, you know, there is an element of that here. And uh, who well, knows? Right? Go to thisiswhatwedo.com or tomhanson.com, get the book and write him and everybody out there after you read this and you will like it and hate it. You know, it's a good book. It takes you for a ride. Write him a letter and tell him you want the sequel. You want him to keep moving forward and moving on. He's had horrible health pro uh, problems and and um, I just hope he stays with us enough to keep keep going because the first two books are amazing and your Japanese listeners will be happy to know they are going to be translated into Japanese, we hope, here at some point this year. Um, I know he's working on a deal like that and a bunch of other things, but he needs – you know, he needs um, inspiration. He needs to hear from people, his fans, to tell him to keep moving forward. And uh, we're always, you know, me and all the rest of his friends, we're always trying to pick him up and keep him going. But it's a great, it's a great piece of art. It shows it's new writing, and we need some new writing. And I'm glad people are still reading books, James, if nothing else. Absolutely. Well, step one, go buy the book. Step two, read it. Step three, listen to this conversation. Oh, you're already here. And uh, step four, go write Tom and, uh, and encourage him for that sequel, because uh, it, it's an exceptionally important thing that he's writing about. And I think it really is uh, touching the zeitgeist. And so I hope it will take off in a big way that we start talking about this and adding it to the kind of societal conversation, which is exactly what we've been doing here. And uh, we'll continue to do in the future as we have you on again uh, in the future. Tom, uh, I almost called you Tom. Jack. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I appreciate your time as always. And once again, I hope people are following along uh, with DeadlineLive.info, RadioFreeBlood.com with your new radio program, which... Uh, I hope is going 
tickety boo, everything going okay with the yeah, radio? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, we, as you know, I've told you off air, I've just been hounded by the dogs of hell for the last couple of weeks. Anything that can go wrong has gone wrong. It doesn't help that I'm a Murphy by blood, I'm sure, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> but um, it's a little daunting. But, you know, I don't quit. I don't give up. We keep pushing forward. We got all kinds of good stuff for people. And I can't wait to have you back on because there's so many great uh, geopolitical economic things and questions I want to ask you. So, But again, I just really appreciate you covering Tom Hansen's book, uh, This Is What We Do, and I appreciate everything you do, man. In fact, that uh, piece you just did about uh, war and the left, I've seen that going around everywhere, man. You really pick people up with that. They really love seeing you do that, and so I hope you, uh, you don't question how you're going, James. Just keep going, man, and stay bold. Let's do it. All right. And once again, people, please support Jack if you appreciate his work. I, 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 we don't, don't exist without your guys' support. So once again, you can find all the details there at DeadlineLive.info, RadioFreeBlood.com. Everything will be linked in the show notes so that you can find all the links to everything we talked about. And Jack Blood, thank you again for your time. Thank you, James. All right, friends, there he goes, Jack Blood, and that will do it for this edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. But as always, let's just go through the mailbag for your correspondence from last month's conversation. And as always, please send in your feedback about this series, and I will uh, read it and respond to it here at the end of each episode. So last month, of course, we were talking to Richard Grove of TragedyandHope.com about Wall Street and Money Never Sleeps. And we had an email in from Michael uh, who writes, Hey James, just a thought on your concerns about the ending of Money Never Sleeps being a bit of a Hollywood ending. I dare say it's a savagely accurate portrayal. Really, for all the looting that goes on, a small pittance gets paid back to soothe their own consciences and appease the plebs, and the game continues without so much as a hiccup. Not to be overly cynical, but over the years it does seem to be a bit of a recurring theme. Uh... Absolutely, Michael. I agree with you completely. This is a very, very accurate portrayal where we have, unfortunately, the banksters uh, laughing and playing in the sunshine as uh, the corpses of the the people that they've trodden underfoot just continue to rot silently in the background without ever even being thought about. Uh, I I agree. That is very realistic, considering what we've seen uh, unfold over the past century of of bankster manipulation and centuries, really, if you want to go that far back. So yes, I agree. It's it's realistic, but but my concern wasn't necessarily that it was that type of ending. My concern was really that it was it 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 felt like the the movie wanted me to think that that was a happy ending. It it felt like a happy ending and everyone, oh, it worked out for everyone. Isn't this a good thing? Oh, it's got the happy music and and look, oh, we'll just go to a shot of you know of Wall Street and 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 everything will end on that kind of positive note. I, I'm perfectly willing for a movie like this to end with that, you know, happy ending for the people who don't deserve the happy ending, as long as the movie is a little bit, or at least makes me feel a little bit self-conscious that this isn't a happy ending and that this really is the tragedy and we should be reflecting on these people, you know, laughing and partying with their hundreds of millions of dollars while uh, real people are, are continuing to, to starve to death on the streets. I mean, that... If I had the sense that that was what Oliver Stone was going for with that ending, I would have been totally on board with it. But I got the exact opposite idea, that this was actually portrayed and felt like and supposed to be some sort of happy ending. That was what really rankled me about that. Uh, we also had an email in from Kat who writes, uh, Interesting, your podcast never talked about the latest big Hollywood look at high finance, The Wolf of Wall Street. And uh, yes, Kat, you're right. We did not mention that in our conversation. I can't speak for Richard, but I know that myself personally, I just haven't seen The Wolf of Wall Street and 
have absolutely no intention to do so if I can avoid it. So, so for that reason, I didn't bring it up in the conversation. I really don't even know about it to talk about it. So that's why I, I didn't mention it. All right, that'll do it for this month. Again, if you have any anything you'd like to share, uh, any thoughts, responses, questions, con- complaints, concerns, criticisms, uh, ideas about this is what we do and our, our conversation here with Jack, um, just let me know through the contact form on CorbettReport.com and we'll address it at the end of next month's episode, which of course brings us to the question... What is next month's episode? What are we going to be examining next? So next up on the chopping block is Leap of Faith, a 1992 American dramedy film, according to Wikipedia, that stars Steve Martin and Deborah Winger. So please uh, watch that in preparation for next month's conversation. And I'm looking forward to talking to you then. And of course, we'll be talking to you before then when all of the different work coming through CorbettReport.com, including, of course, the next edition of the Well-Read Anarchist podcast series, that new podcast series coming out each Wednesday. So please stay tuned to the main Corbett Report feed for that or subscribe specifically to the Well-Read Anarchist RSS feed. As always, all of the links to everything we talked about will be in the show notes for today's episode. So this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thanking you for joining me. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon.